Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The word of the Lord. Well, we are now in the sixth week, I believe, looking at these parables from Jesus in Matthew's gospel. We're calling this series, He Told Stories. One of the things I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed about this series and about many of Jesus's parables is that many of his parables, not all of them, but many of them are so obvious. They're so obvious in their point as, they're, as to be almost, almost insulting to our intelligence, right? And, and I think Jesus does that for a reason. He tells us these parables that even our little ones can see the point of after one reading in order to challenge us. To challenge us who claim to be followers of Jesus with really what should be obvious, with what should be clear implications of what we claim to believe. So this is a story about forgiveness. It's a story about forgiveness. We live today in a culture that prizes vengeance. We don't live in a culture that prizes forgiveness. Our politics, don't get mad at me. I don't care if you're on the right or the left or in the middle. Our politics are full of vengeance. Our media, our film, our music, they're full of vengeance. We live in a culture that loves vengeance. It's hard to find a movie a film that is about forgiveness. It's very easy to find a film, and I bet you can think of a few off the top of your head that are about revenge. The point of this parable is clear. The people of Jesus are to be counter-cultural. We are not to prize vengeance. We're not to prize payback, but rather we're to prize forgiveness because forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people Forgive people. That's the big idea this morning. Jesus makes it clear for you and for me that a willingness to forgive is something that flows out of our own understanding and faith in the gospel itself. This chapter, all of Matthew 18, is is about conflict. 
and about Christians caring for one another. And, and Peter, in verse 21, asks this question that prompts Jesus' parable. If you look in verse 21, you'll see the question he asked. Drew just read it for us. Peter's heard Jesus tell us how to pray. Remember back in Matthew chapter 6, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He's heard Jesus teach in the immediately preceding verses about how we're to deal with grievances that we have with one another, with our brothers and sisters. And so Peter asks a natural question. Hey, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive people? I mean, come on, give me a number here. Seven times? Now, Peter, good old Peter, when you're feeling bad about your life as a follower of Jesus, Peter should encourage you. He's like, seven times is generous. It was well-known rabbinical Jewish teaching in Peter's day and in Jesus's day that you should forgive someone three times. You get three strikes. And after three strikes, donezo. You're out. No more. And so Peter thinks, man, I've more than doubled. Not six, but seven times, Jesus. Isn't that adequate? Peter's beginning to understand the character of Jesus's kingdom, that it's more generous than anything he had encountered to this point. But he doesn't yet fully grasp, does he, the extent of God's love. Jesus's point is that if you're still counting, you're not forgiving. If you're still counting, you're not forgiving. And and listen, aren't we like Peter? Aren't we like Peter? It is in our nature as men and women and children to want to place boundaries and limits on forgiveness. Uh, It's in our nature to hold bitterness in our hearts. We keep scores of offenses, don't we? We carry grudges, don't we? Sometimes for years, sometimes for decades. So Jesus is speaking to each one of us. He's speaking to me this morning. He's speaking to vengeful and non-forgiving people in this parable. He speaks to us in our own sin and in the weakness of our flesh. And he invites us into a better way, into a better life, the life of the kingdom. Forgiven people, forgive people. Four things as we move through this parable. First, Jesus tells us about our hopeless condition. Look at verses 23 through 25. So Peter's asked this question, how many times do I have to forgive? Seven, surely that's enough. And Jesus responds by saying, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 or 70 times seven. Side note, that doesn't mean that what's 70 times, 491st time you don't have to forgive, right? The idea here is that you should always be willing to forgive your brothers and sisters. And then he launches into this parable. And the first thing Jesus wants for you and for me to hear is the hopeless condition of this indebted servant. Look at what Jesus says. He owed his Lord, his king, verse 24, 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was the largest unit of monetary exchange in the ancient world. And it's hard to know exactly how many dollars that would translate into, but I can tell you for sure it would have been an astronomical amount of money. Um, To put it into perspective, ancient historians tell us that the entire Roman province of Palestine, so the whole province in the years of Herod the Great produced about 8,000 talents of tax revenue per year. So this servant owes more than the national debt, pretty much. 
He's in such deep trouble, Jesus tells us, that in verse 25, his wife and his children along with him are to be sold off. So this debt, it's about to destroy him, isn't it? And it's about to destroy everyone that he loves. Jesus is being hyperbolic here. The reason Jesus is being hyperbolic here is because he's a master storyteller and great stories often will use hyperbole to make a point. Jesus wants us, he wants us to see ourselves in the place of this servant. The hole that the servant is in is a picture. It's a picture of the hopelessness of all of our conditions apart from God's grace, apart from God's intervention. Listen, every single one of you, I don't care where you're from or what you've done. Every single one of you owe an infinite debt to God because that is what our rebellion as humans, our sin, which is what the Bible calls that, incurs. Sin puts us in deep moral and spiritual debt before a holy and righteous God. Some of you are likely familiar with this. If you were to go to Midtown Manhattan on 6th Avenue, I think it's between 42nd and 43rd Streets, you could look up on one of the sides of the building and see the national debt ticker. Any of you familiar with this? It shows the current state of the United States national debt and keeps up with it in real time. So as you might imagine, the number is constantly going up, not down, right? I want you to think about that as a picture of our own spiritual debt as sinners before God. It's hard for us to do that. It's, it's not natural for us to read a story like this and put ourselves in the place of this indebted servant, of this unforgiving servant. What we want to do is put ourselves in the place that's been sinned against, not in the place of the one doing the sinning. But, but I think Jesus is asking for you to put yourself in this servant's shoes, even though that's not the way we're wired We compare ourselves to this unforgiving servant normally, and we think, you know, I come out pretty well here. But but Jesus asks us to look deeper. He's asking you not to abstract this story out of your own life. Because the scriptures tell us that even the most moral people have an insurmountable debt facing them when they stand before God. That's what sin has done to us. Sinners are insolvent debtors. And the reason is because sin is not primarily, we say this often here, it's not primarily about things you do that are bad or things you don't do that are good. Sin primarily, on the other hand, is about who we are. Sin is not a behavior first. Sin is a condition first. We accumulate debt against God because of the disposition of all of our hearts. The disposition of all of our hearts is to build our lives around people and things that are not God. The Bible calls this idolatry. And listen, very upstanding, moral, nice, and kind people, along with very immoral people, all orient their hearts towards worshiping things other than the one true God. For moral people, ironically, it might even be Their own morality that separates them from God. 
It might be their own pretended righteousness that hides the real God from them. The the point is that the state of our hearts, no matter who we are, is, is uglier than we are prone to expect. The Bible paints a vivid picture in this parable and in many other portions. Our condition is hopeless. Our debt against God is incalculable. Secondly, Jesus tells us about our natural disposition. Follow along with me. Verse 26, Jesus continues. The servant recognizes the trouble he's in. So he approaches the king with a proposal. Look at verse 26. He says, have patience with with me and, and I will repay you everything. Just give me time. (laughs) Just give me time. You can put me on the juice, right? Charge me interest. Just give me time and I'll pay you back, he says. Now, remember what this man owes. It's like a gazillion dollars. Just think of an infinite number of dollars that he's accrued in debt. There's no way he could pay it back. Think about that national debt ticker, you know, $3 trillion or whatever it is. And then imagine trying to pay that bad boy down on your own. No amount of side hustles, no amount of Uber drives, no amount of pizzas delivered is going to help you get out of that hole. The king could have given this man a million extra lifetimes and he still wouldn't pay his debt off. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is picturing for us in this story our own natural disposition. When we're confronted with the spiritual and moral debt that we Oh God, because we're rebels, because we're traitors against him. What do we naturally want to do? We want to bargain. We want to bargain with him. We want to repay God. Listen, I know that in San Antonio, some of you are here today and you've lived the majority of your life trying to pay your debt back to God because that's what you think it means to be a Christian. And and I want you to hear this morning that if you've been led to believe that that's what Christianity is, working hard to be good and to be religious and to be upright so that God will be pleased so that in turn you can live a good and happy life and die and go to heaven, you have been deceived. My grandfather was a World War II veteran and he used to tell me stories of friends that had fought with him in World War II that would come back home and join the church and devote their lives to the service of religion. And the reason they would give is because when they were in the war, they would pray that God would save their lives, would spare them during the war. And if he would do that, then when they get home, they'll devote the rest of their life to paying God back by serving him and by going to church. The problem with that way of thinking, the problem with saying to God what this servant says to this king, I'll pay you back everything is that it radically, it radically miscalculates both how much we owe and how much we can pay. It's about as as anti-gospel as you can get, in fact. But it's still how our hearts function so often. We hear about the debt we've incurred and and we want naturally to to pay it back on our own, to get ourselves out of debt, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And, And you know, You know you're functioning this way in your life when a couple of regular things are happening. You know you're functioning this way in your life when your attempts at obedience are driven by guilt and not by joy. You know you're functioning this way when you hide sin 
that has not yet been exposed. You know you're functioning this way when you aren't serving gladly or giving generously, but you're doing it begrudgingly or not at all. All of those and many more are signs that we're trying to live transactionally with God. Transactionally. Signs that we think we can somehow get ourselves out of debt, but Jesus tells us that we're like this man was in the beginning of the story. Listen, we can't repay the debt we owe. All we can do, all we can do is rest in the king's forgiveness. Look at that. That's the third thing. We've seen our natural, our hopeless condition, our natural disposition. Third, God's gracious provision. The background of verses 23 and 26, I I think makes what the king does all the more remarkable, right? The king doesn't answer the servant's bargaining proposal by saying, I'll give you three months and I'm going to charge you 10%, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't enter into some sort of new arrangement. He doesn't seek to have someone else buy this guy's debt up. No, he simply forgives the debt. And he he forgives the debt entirely. Verse 27 says, out of pity for him. That's actually a bad translation. A better translation. Pastors can do this from time to time, right? We can question this Bible's translation. This is not a good translation. A better translation is he had compassion. He had compassion on him. That verb, he had compassion, is a verb Matthew uses a couple of times in his gospel with Jesus as the subject. And and that word, he had compassion, it connotes a deep, from the guts sense of love and heart warmth towards another. For example, in Matthew 14, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus has just heard that his friend, his cousin, John the Baptist, has been murdered by Herod. And Matthew tells us that when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there, the place that he was, in a boat to a desolate place by himself, presumably to mourn, right? But the crowds won't leave him alone. When the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus went ashore, he's hoping he could mourn in silence, but instead he sees a great crowd and what? happens. The same verb is used. He had compassion on them and he healed their sick. It's the same verb used of this king towards the servant. This servant has a massive debt facing him. He's about to suffer dire consequences, but the king in his graciousness completely forgives him out of pure compassion. There were no conditions. There was no hesitation. This is an act of sheer, unadulterated, unmixed, pure grace. And that's all that it is. Here we see in a verse via this parable, the good news of the gospel. If you've never heard it, I'm so glad you're here. God has compassion on insolvent debtors. God has compassion on insolvent debtors like you and like me. And God forgives us our debts entirely. It costs us nothing, not a single red penny to be forgiven. The servant doesn't work to pay off his debt. He doesn't successfully bargain with the king to get himself off the hook. He's completely at the mercy of his Lord and his Lord forgave him. That's what God does for us. How can God do something like that? 
How can God do something like that for us? Well, he does it by paying off our debt himself. See, the gospel tells us that God in Jesus incurs the cost of our sin. So that forgiveness costs us nothing, but it costs him deeply. The author Tim Keller writes the following, quote, Mercy and forgiveness must be free and unmerited to the wrongdoer. If the wrongdoer has to do something to merit it, then it isn't mercy. But forgiveness always comes at a cost to the one granting forgiveness. The cost that God paid in granting us forgiveness was the life of his own beloved son, Jesus. God forgives your debt and my debt in sending Jesus to pay them off as our redeemer. He gave his own life to redeem us out of debt, to liberate us from our moral and spiritual bondage. How great is that? How great is our God? What kind of God does that? What kind of a king pays the debts of his own faithless servants at great cost to himself? What kind of a God delivers himself up to die in the place of rebels who are trying to cast him off of his throne? That's the God of the Bible. That's the only true God. That's what makes the Christian story, so uniquely glorious. It's not about primarily, listen, it's not primarily about how we need to be compassionate and forgiving and gentle people. It's primarily about a compassionate and forgiving and gentle God who died for his uncompassionate, unforgiving, proud people. The story tells us in that one verse that God has graciously provided, he's paid off all our debt. Just like this king paid off all the debts of this servant. And so we see, lastly, our forgiving position. You know, the punchline, the punchline of this story, again, it's very obvious, and it takes up the whole second half of the parable, verse 28 all the way through the end. Forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. Or as Jesus puts it elsewhere in another story, when the prostitute comes into the dinner party and washes his feet with her hair. And the religious crowd is offended. And Jesus looks at Simon, his host, and says, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, and she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. The servant doesn't get that, does he? Look at what happens. He, he leaves the king's presence. And first thing that happens, verse 28, he goes and he finds a colleague who owes him a hundred denarii. That's about four months of wages. So not an insubstantial amount of money, but it's not anywhere close to what he had owed. And look at what Jesus tells us. He, he seized the man violently. He choked him and he demanded, pay me back what you owe me. And then his colleague pleads with him, interestingly enough, using almost the exact same language that he had used to the king moments earlier. Have patience with me, and I'll pay you. Verse 29. But the unforgiving servant refuses. He has his colleague thrown into debtor's prison. Uh, again, to restate what's patently obvious. The servant was owed a minuscule fraction of what he himself owed the king, and yet he refused to forgive. 
He refused to show compassion. The unforgiving servant did not see. He did not see that our guilt before God is unendingly greater than any other person's guilt can be before us. Did you hear that? Our guilt before God is unendingly greater than any other person's guilt can be before us. There was no change in this man as a result of the grace he had just experienced. And that's the tragedy of this parable that Jesus is asking each one of us to see. Jesus is saying that if we truly understand the grace we have received, we, we must be willing to forgive others. To refuse to forgive, Jesus says, after we have been forgiven, is just as flagrantly offensive to God as this man's refusal to forgive $10,000 when he had been forgiven $10 zillion. Forgiveness is one of the main marks of the people of God. One of the main marks of those who understand the gospel. And so the church, we who trust in Jesus, must be a community of forgiveness. When a heart's When a heart has really been captured by the grace of Jesus, that heart is enlarged and that heart is enabled to extend grace to others, to take on the cost of forgiveness. And a refusal to forgive, brothers and sisters, a refusal to forgive is not the consequences of unforgivable sins committed against us. A refusal to forgive, rather, is the consequence of unbelief in our own hearts about the reality of our place before God. So, are there people in your life, are there people in your story that you need to forgive? Are there people in your life that you're holding a grudge against? Are there people in your life that you're bitter towards? Let's close by by asking, by inviting God's spirit to guide us and and to convict us in these areas. This can take many shapes in our hearts. These can be small slights that irk you. This stuff happens in churches, as we know, and in relationships all the time. When someone says something offensive or says something stupid, when someone unintentionally or intentionally offends you and and it hurts. The Holy Spirit asks you, have you forgiven that person? The gospel tells you that God forgives you all of your hurtful words against him so you can be empowered to forgive others. Maybe for you, it's significant relational breaches. It's not just cracks in the cup, but the cup has been broken. Maybe it's in your marriage that this has happened. Maybe it's in your relationships with your children or your parents. Maybe it's in your workplace. And listen, friends, it might take a lot of work to reconcile. And having the same relationship might not even be possible or wise, but forgiveness from the heart is a consequence of your believing the gospel. Do you need to do that? Maybe for you, there are past hurts that you've held on to that you've kind of tucked away in a corner of your heart. 
Maybe it happened in past churches or in past marriages, in old relationships that have soured. You've held on to grudges and it's made you bitter. Now is the time to hear Jesus. Listen, he has forgiven you an infinite debt at the cost of his own very life. And he now calls you and empowers you to forgive those who hurt you. Do you need to do that? There may be times when God calls upon you to have a merciful, forgiving heart towards someone who's not yet repentant. God may call you to be ready to forgive that person in case they do repent. And yet to deal with the fact that they have not gotten to the point where they have seen their sin. Now, in that situation, which happens commonly, you can't restore that relationship on your own. Reconciliation is a two-way street. You might never reconcile that relationship because this person cannot get to a place where it's possible. But, but God asks you to forgive them in your heart. Even if you can't restore the fullness of what the relationship once was on your own because the other party doesn't think there needs to be any reconciliation doesn't think there's been any offense against you. You can still be ready, friends, to forgive. Why? Why? Not so that God will be happy with you, not so that you can check that off your spiritual to-do list, but because of what God in Jesus has done for you. He's forgiven us. He's forgiven me for the sins I've committed in this sermon, which I'm sure are legion. He's forgiven you for the things you've done this morning or said this morning or thought this morning that you're not even aware of. He's forgiven us for all of our future sins, all of our past sins, for every sin we think about committing and every sin we do commit. That's how precious the blood of Jesus Christ is for sinners. And if Jesus has shed his blood to pay the cost of our forgiveness, then it's incumbent upon us who are propelled by grace to be a community marked by the same forgiveness which magnifies the mercy of Jesus even more. Let's listen to this parable. Let's be a people marked by that kind of love. As Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter four, be kind. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray.